Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, Joe Biden saves us from default with a budget deal that has some Republicans furious at Kevin McCarthy. Ron DeSantis steps up his attacks on Donald Trump as Chris Christie and Mike Pence get ready to jump in the race. And later, Congresswoman Barbara Lee stops by Crooked HQ to talk about her campaign for the U.S. Senate seat in California. But first, big news. Vote Save America has launched our Fuck Bans Leave Queer Kids Alone Fund. This Pride Month, Crooked's working to help raise $50,000 to support groups on the ground in states that are banning care and targeting trans families. Groups like the Transgender Law Center, the Trans Justice Funding Project, and the Trans Youth Equality Foundation. Uh, head to votesaveamerica.com slash fuckbans to chip in. Also, we want to share a sneak peek of sneak listen, I guess. Not really a peek. It's an audio format uh, of Crooked's newest pod. It's called Dreamtown, the story of Adelanto, which we are proud to say is an official selection at this year's Tribeca Festival. Dreamtown is the wild but true story of a down-on-its-luck city in the Southern California desert and the scrappy, sometimes dubious cast of characters determined to reinvent it. Take a listen. In 2014, Adelanto, California, a small town in the Mojave Desert, was so broke there was talk of dissolving itself completely. Then, along came John Bug Woodard Jr., a 63-year-old gun-toting conservative hippie who had a wild idea to save Adelanto. I got on old Google. I did a little Googling, and I found out the secret. The secret, according to Bug, via Google, was cannabis. I've heard those cannabis shops make a lot of money. What started as a simple solution to revive this small town would lead to a series of backroom dealings, a shocking scandal involving the FBI. I'm David Weinberg, and this is Dreamtown, the story of Adelanto. Subscribe to Dreamtown now to hear more bonus content before its premiere on June 7th, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get to the news. We have ourselves a deal. Uh, Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy have agreed on a plan to avoid the first ever U.S. default, saving us from a catastrophic recession that would have been entirely self-inflicted. Bravo. Bravo. Um, In exchange for suspending the debt limit until 2024, Republicans got shockingly little of the ransom they initially asked for. No cuts to Medicare, no cuts to Social Security or Medicaid, no repeal of the Inflation Reduction Act, no repeal of student loan reform. The president will get his proposed budget for the military and veterans All other spending will be the same next year as it was this year and grow by only 1% in 2025, which with inflation amounts to a slight cut. Uh, The work requirements for food assistance already apply to people between 18 and 49 years old. This deal will raise the age to 54, but it also exempts veterans and the homeless, which means more people overall will be able to get help. The work requirements for welfare will be tightened slightly, but only amounts to a cut of $5 million over 10 years. And there's a slight cut to the IRS that won't really affect the agency for several years. The House passed the bill on Wednesday by 314 to 117. It was supported by 149 Republicans and 165 Democrats. And it's expected to pass the Senate as well. Obviously, this is not a budget. Democrats would have passed if they controlled both houses of Congress. A lot of progressives 
voted no in the House, probably in the Senate as well, um, though they don't sound particularly outraged by this outcome. What's your take on the substance of the deal? Well, I think we should stipulate this is stupid and performatively cruel public policy. Democrats would never do this on their own. The idea that deficits are our number one concern is stupid. The idea that you would tackle deficits without asking the wealthy corporations to pay what they owe or even looking at the military budget is just asinine. Having said that, this is way better than it could have been. Biden was very smart about how they went about doing this. They gave McCarthy symbolic wins in exchange to protect substance of progress. The fact that the Inflation Reduction Act is preserved, in particular the climate funding is preserved. You know, I'll give you an example of one way in which they traded the sort of the symbolism. McCarthy came in and said, you know, in his initial bill, they were going to repeal Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, which is be- which the court may do for them, but is before the I was going to say, yeah, that's yeah. The- but Biden did not give that up. He could have given that up and said, well, I'll probably lose in the court anyway. I'll give them this in exchange for something else. He kept that. But what he gave instead was a statutory end to the pause in student loan payment collections. But Biden's team has already said they were going to end that pause this summer anyway. So McCarthy can go back to his team and say, look what I got from Biden. And Biden, But he got something Biden was going to give him anyway. And so it was just very well handled here. And I get that no one is going to rush out to volunteer in 2024 because something is wor- better than could have been or not as bad as expected. But given what where we could have been, there was no default. We avoided the economic damage that often happens in the run-up to default during these debt limit crises. And the cuts are smaller than we thought, and the budget caps are for less time than we thought. And that's all, I think, way better than we hoped. And I think that that is to the credit of the president's team. I honestly don't see how you'd get a better budget if there had been no debt limit fight which, as we've talked about, they would have had to negotiate over a budget anyway. If those negotiations failed, there's a a good chance of a government shutdown that they would have had to figure out their way out of anyway, both sides. And, you know, the fact is Republicans control the House. And so when you have one party in control of half a branch of government, then you're going to have to negotiate and compromise at some point or else you get a government shutdown. Or in this case, you would have had a, a default. And with that context in mind and those constraints in mind, I, I genuinely don't see how Democrats could have gotten a better deal than they already had. A cut of a few percent on spending, which is what it is when you factor in inflation, isn't that much in the grand scheme of things. As you said, the work requirements are dumb and are, are going to hurt some people for sure, but they're pretty minor. The fact that the welfare work requirement change will only save $5 million over 10 years that is like nothing compared to the grand scheme of things in a budget that is hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars large. So my question is like, how did Joe Biden get a deal this good from a party this crazy? Uh, like, did he outsmart Kevin McCarthy? Did McCarthy outsmart the Freedom Caucus? I mean, you and I and most other people, in fairness, uh, who talked about this thought that either we would uh, default or Kevin McCarthy would lose his job. And neither of those things happened. I think it is clear that Biden outsmarted McCarthy, for sure. And I think that happened in two ways. And really, for all of the absolutely absurd levels of credit that the Capitol Hill press corps is falling all over themselves to give McCarthy today, what they should really be doing is crediting Joe Biden, who kind of did Kevin McCarthy's job for him. 
And what Biden did that was, I think, quite smart here is when they went into these negotiations, Biden recognized that McCarthy could only pass a deal, would only pass a deal that he thought would allow him to keep his job. He could only pass a deal that it looked like he won a bunch of things. And so once the negotiation started, and we can go back in time and debate why Democrats didn't get rid of the debt limit during the lame dock or why they didn't mint a trillion dollar coin. And we've talked about why the 14th Amendment stuff didn't make a ton of sense in this context. But once you got to the point where McCarthy's folks and Biden's folks were sitting down and the president was talking to the speaker, what the president did was he stayed quiet. He didn't make any draw any red lines. He didn't go out and beat up McCarthy or polarize the negotiations. He gave McCarthy space. And Biden understood that, for particularly in Republican politics, these negotiations can be zero sum. So if Biden comes out and says, I will not accept one penny less than this, then it all of a sudden that becomes something that McCarthy can't give up or it looks like he conceded to Biden. So the president took a bunch of shit from people in his own party, from a lot of members of Congress who complained about it, by being quiet because McCarthy was out there. They were bragging. He's, and Joe Biden's losing the messaging war. He yeah. should, he's should. he got to go out there and use the bully pulpit more. You know, Where is he? Why is he so quiet? And he made the right decisions. Case He was willing, and this is presidents have to make this decision all the time, which is take on short-term political water to achieve a medium-term or long-term goal. And he did that here, and he got a better deal because of it. And then the second way that this really worked out for the president is that, frankly, there's an asymmetry in these negotiations between Republicans and Democrats when it gets to how government actually works. Republicans hate government. They don't care about government. They're trying to take it down. They have no familiarity with the details of how these programs works. Biden's folks, the one, we know a lot of them, we worked with a lot of them, they have spent, in some cases, decades, dating back to the 90s, building these programs, administering these programs, understanding how they work. And so when you get to the table, it becomes very easy to make Republicans think they're getting something when really you're writing the policy in a way that helps you. The work requirements is a perfect example. We're gonna we're gonna raise the work requirement age, but then we're gonna which is gonna affect some people, but then we're gonna expand the eligibility so more people will actually get access to the program in total. And they kind of ran circles around him in the actual writing of the bill. And so in those two ways, Biden that worked for Biden and he got a better deal than it could have been. Yeah, I know. I know that the, the White House um, likes to say that Biden is often underestimated, and they they say that quite a bit. I think in this in this instance, yeah, in many instances actually, they're right. You know, they they're absolutely right. Like Joe Biden is a really good negotiator, and he did a, an excellent job, and he didn't let all of the political pressure get to him on this. He just sort of, and, and, you know, there was a lot of risk to that. I want to go back to the 14th Amendment thing one more time because there's, you know, still the, the detractors on the deal on the left would still say, like, he should have just gone ahead with the 14th Amendment. Now that we know what this deal looks like, it is pretty clear that there was there was a choice for Joe Biden, right? You either make a bet that John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett are going to agree with the Democrats' legal interpretation of the 14th Amendment. If you win that bet, there are no cuts, no policy concessions, and no debt limit fight ever again. So that's cool. If you lose that bet, then a country that's already dealing with inflation is plunged into an economic crisis and perhaps a prolonged recession that there's no obvious way out of, right? We don't know how the deal is going to come about to get out of that once the court decides Okay, the 14th Amendment, that's wrong. The theory's wrong. Then we're all fucked. So you can either make that choice and take that bet. You know, the, the win is big. The loss is also pretty big. 
or you take this deal that is a slight cut in spending for two years. I mean, I, to me, that's not that's not even close. It's not even close. I want to help you with one thing here, which is I'm going to add an addendum to include Samuel Alito in your list. Otherwise, the host of Strict Scrutiny are going to come running through that wall like 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 in a Kool Aid commercial. No, <laughs> no, no. The reason I the reason I list those three is because obviously we don't have Alito. Okay. Obviously we don't have okay. Thomas, and obviously we don't have Gorsuch. Okay, we good. have the, the the three most likely to agree with us would be those three. Yes, there we go. Just just trying yeah. to protect you ourselves, the integrity no, no, of the no, studio no, I, wall. Yeah. Uh, no prayer that we ever famous Samuel Alito apologist that you are. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about McCarthy, who, for some reason, you don't think should get much credit for this. Uh, If you do, do you disagree? Would you like to give credit? I'm I'm going to give Kevin McCarthy a little credit in this one single instance. Okay, here we go, Elijah. Get a time marker. Let's clip this thing. (laughs) I want it on TikTok by lunchtime. Kevin McCarthy has this crazy fucking caucus he went through how many rounds of 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 you know humiliation (laughs) to try to get this job barely cobbled a coalition together how many times do we say he's stupid he's not gonna be able to get this through the house he's not gonna be able to get anything through the house which he did he did get a bill through the house that was horrific if it if joe biden and the democrats had gone with that and then when he, when Joe Biden said, of course, we're not going to go with that, he somehow negotiated a deal that still got a majority of Republicans in the House to go along with it. How did he do that? Was that, that was just, that was just, we're just, this is just dumb luck. Just Kevin McCarthy just stumbled into this. It's not dumb luck, but I just do not think we should hand out awards or compare people to to LBJ for doing oh, okay. the bare okay. minimum required who, of their jobs. Who, did someone compare Ken McCarthy to LBJ? I think if you read Punchbowl <laughs> this morning and you took, there's an anagram that says somewhere in there that Kevin McCarthy is the second coming of LBJ. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, we are grading him on a curve here. We didn't default. Oh, of course. We didn't default and he didn't get fired. But here's a curve. I think this was a better deal and less chaos than John Boehner had in, in, with us in 2011. Yeah, that is that is. Absolutely true. I think I think Kevin McCarthy in this instance did a better job than John Boehner or Paul Ryan would have done, especially Paul Ryan, because Paul Ryan's a policy wonk who actually cares about cutting government down to the bone more than anything else. And I think in this instance, Kevin McCarthy being like, I don't give a shit about anything, really. Like, I don't have any strong policy beliefs. I just want to keep my job. And yeah, I don't want to. I want to avert default too because uh, that could cost me my job as well. I, I think you don't have to have you don't you don't have to believe that Kevin McCarthy has pure motivations here. But I think he was skilled at figuring out how to get out of this particular predicament. Is all I'm saying. I think skilled is doing a lot of work there. Once again, <laughs> all he did was keep the government open and avoid a global financial catastrophe. Oh, I, I'm not. I, I know that. Like that, that is like the basics of your job. That yeah, like he, the, that's what he but, did. But but doing that with this caucus, with the crate, like the, the nuts that he has in the Republican House does not seem like an easy job. So here's how I think we should judge this. Well, first, let me say your question is, why isn't he losing his job, right? Yeah. The reason he is not losing his job here or the two reasons he's not losing his job is the first, there's no obvious alternative. There's no one that someone wants in yeah. that job. And the vast majority of the caucus doesn't want to go through that absolutely embarrassing shit show they went through six months ago. 
So they would have to be an ex- they're not going to toss him overboard for what is largely a venal sin against the MAGA Ten Commandments, which is what this is. The other reason is this was a fight over spending in the size of government. It's not fucking 2010. This is not know, what Republicans the- get out of bed every morning. What dry, the Republican Party post-Trump is a party driven by culture war issues. And so if this was a fight over abortion, trans rights, book bans, all those – immigration, if he had not achieved what he p- promised to achieve on those issues, it might be a different thing. No one cares here. They're all just play acting in this. They they had to have a fight. They The Republican – base wanted him to do something. They didn't really care what it was. And so at the end of the day, it really wasn't a big deal politically because it's not, it was not over something they really care about. Let's see what happens if one of those issues were to come up and it would uh, with si- of similar stakes. Undoubtedly, he will lose that fight. Um, now that, that to me is the biggest reason is that, is that the, the politics of, well, overall politics have changed, but especially Republican uh, politics within the Republican Party has changed, where the central fight during the Obama era was over the size and role of government and spending. And now it's all culture war, it's investigations. I mean, a great example is Jim Jordan, House Freedom Caucus godfather, super right-wing MAGA guy, Kevin McCarthy, puts him on oversight, gives him his, gives him the chair of oversight to bring him inside the tent. And then Jordan is the one telling the right wing, just calm down over this deal. Because what does Jordan care about? Jordan doesn't really care that much about spending. Jordan cares that he gets to go do his investigations and attack the Biden administration. And the same thing goes with, like you said, with the culture war issues. One more thing on this is the way to judge this is not what just happened, but what happens next. Because McCarthy is is going to be, he spent some of his political capital with the far right. And so how is he going to build that back? He was on CNBC the day of the vote talking about holding FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt for oh, yeah. not helping them obstruct investigations into Donald Trump. So there's going to be, a, we have to see what he's going to do. There was a report that he is giving the January 6th footage to a conspiracy theorist. There's going to be a bunch of things he's going to do to rebuild that goodwill. And we have to judge not just how he spent the capital, but how he builds it back. Well, let's listen to the... Um, so only only four of 34 Freedom Caucus members voted yes on this deal. And the four that did vote yes included um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, <laughs> which is just wild. Um, so he, he did lose most of the Freedom Caucus. It just didn't matter that much. But... They're pretty outraged. Uh, a few Republicans, few of the Freedom Caucus, Magagoons, uh, even did make some noise about outing McCarthy as speaker. Let's listen. After this vote, and he will win the vote tonight, but after this vote, we will have discussions uh, about whether there should be a motion to vacate or not. It is inescapable to me that there must be a motion to vacate the chair. If a majority of Republicans are against a piece of legislation and you use Democrats to pass it, that would immediately be a black letter violation of the deal we had with McCarthy to allow his ascent to the speakership, and it would likely trigger an immediate motion to vacate. So they're not happy. They're not happy. And they're just out there attacking Kevin McCarthy. But, you know, back to the scenario where they actually you know, decide to go forward with the motion to vacate. So some Republican introduces it, they take a vote, and then assuming that Democrats, that no Democrats step in to save McCarthy, McCarthy could lose because he only has a four-seat majority and there are quite a few Republicans who are pissed at him. But then you're right, then what happens after that? Because 
how do you get a more conservative speaker than Kevin McCarthy when you couldn't get that back in January and nothing has really changed? And do Democrats and for Democrats, do Democrats really want a more right wing speaker than Kevin McCarthy? Or do they just step in to try to save him because Kevin McCarthy's better than whatever you're going to get next? I think Democrats want chaos in that situation. That'd be my personal recommendation. But it, <laughs> yeah. it's ultimately it's like you're going to trade in for Steve Scalise, the guy who also helped pass the deal. Like to what? Right. What's the what's the upside there? Yeah, like, for you have to go right. pretty far down the list before you get to like uh, Jim Jordan as the as the speaker, right? That's just, that's probably not going to happen. And they tried that, right? And that's not going to get them the two the two. I think it's two seventeen they need right now because the House is down a member. But you just there's no the only person right now who who has the votes to be Speaker of the House is Kevin McCarthy. There's no one else. Yeah. Except maybe they can trade for Steve Scalise, but to what end? I think there's there's one last quality that Kevin McCarthy has that makes him ideal for this role and why he was successful is that he can endure just an endless amount of humiliation and and pain because he is Tom Wamsgan. He is, he is a pain sponge. He is a pain sponge. Kevin Good McCarthy job. is a pain sponge. <laughs> That's what I'll say about him. Uh, all right. So Democrats don't currently have the votes to get rid of the debt ceiling permanently. Uh, Biden said a few weeks ago he's open to invoking the 14th Amendment in the future. So we don't have to go through this again. What does that look like? Are there other ways Democrats can make sure that we don't go through this again in 2025, which is the next time we'll hit the debt limit? Happy re-election, Joe Biden. The debt limit expires 19 days before you get inaugurated. Which you you will then have Lovely. months of extraordinary measures, I imagine, to get you into the spring or summer. But what a fun way to start. I still have yet to hear anyone articulate a real way in which you could test the proposition of the 14th Amendment without having crossed the X date, without having actually spent money, right. raised debt after you no longer have the authority to do so. Maybe someone has and, a plan and for And by that. the way, if you've heard of it, if you're a legal scholar, if you're a member of Congress, if you have an idea of how to do that, please let us know because I, I have done the same thing. I've scoured every take and I have not heard one person who's, in, who's talked about the 14th Amendment talk about how you could do it before you hit the X date. So if you can't do that, the only thing we can really do here is reelect Joe Biden, keep the Senate, retake the House, which will at least allow us to extend the debt limit without any drama next time around. There is certainly not majority support in either the House or the Senate for repealing the mechanism yet, but we should be working towards that because it is playing with fire. And the longer you play with fire, the more likely you are to get burned. Just because it did nothing bad happen this time doesn't mean something bad won't happen next time. And so we should try to take it away. I think legislatively is probably the only way to do that, absent this secret legal theory that no one will put on the internet, at least in a place where you and I can find it. <laughs> I know there's still that case working its way through the courts where I think a, a government employees union is suing Yellen saying that like she can't like it's not legal for her to abide by the debt ceiling because the debt ceiling is unconstitutional. So like maybe that goes through the courts and something happens. I don't know. That's the only thing that I've heard of otherwise. But yeah, no. And and Schumer, by the way, someone asked him about not uh, getting rid of the debt ceiling or lifting the debt ceiling when we had the majority. And he said it wasn't just Manchin, it was three or four others. So I guess then our next move is to find those three or four others and to uh, put some pressure on them to change their votes. Well, it is you. this is sort of why Biden did not leap at that idea, because you can't do it. It's also there's short-term political pain in doing so. 
It, it, it is if if just voting to extend the debt limit is seen as a bad political vote, imagine what eliminating it would be like in the minds of these people. Now, I think that's a price worth paying and you can handle yeah, that too. in the long run. But in the mind of politicians who almost by definition fail the marshmallow test, they're always going to choose short term political security over long term strategic benefit. And so it's always going to be a hard vote to get them to do. Yeah. And I look, I get you don't want the short term political pain, but I would argue that uh it doesn't bring much political pain because like 5% of people in this fucking country even know what the debt limit is. <laughs> so, you know, good luck with your campaign where someone's going to run out and be like, oh, they voted to eliminate the debt limit. Right? No, no one cares about that. I think we could probably, if you and I sat down together, write a pretty killer political ad on that point, but we'll keep it to ourselves. All right, well, let's, let's, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's keep it to ourselves. All right, lots of new developments in the Republican primary. There she is. Rhonda Sanctimonious. So two of the people Trump almost killed will try to get their revenge at the ballot box by announcing their presidential campaigns next week. Chris Christie and Mike Pence. The former vice president has boldly criticized his old boss for endangering him and his family on January 6th. Uh, and Christie has basically promised to spend the primary kicking the shit out of Trump. Meanwhile, Ron DeSantis coming off his wildly successful Twitter circles announcement, uh, has finally started to sharpen his case against Trump in Iowa this week. Let's listen. At the end of the day, leadership is not about entertainment. It's not about building a brand. It's not about virtue signaling. It is about results. Uh, The former president's now attacking me, saying that Cuomo did better handling COVID than Florida did. He attacked me for opposing an amnesty bill in the Congress. He did support this amnesty, this good lot too. Two million illegal aliens he wanted to amnesty. I opposed it because that's what America first principles dictate, that you're opposed to amnesty. In terms of the debt limit, yeah, I think he should, I should think he should come up. You know, I mean, are you, are you leading from the front or are you waiting for polls to tell you uh, what position to take? I don't need someone to give me a list to know what a conservative justice looks like. He used to say how great Florida was. Hell, his whole family moved to Florida under my governorship. Are you kidding me? Um, so, so some of this stuff, I think, is, look, if someone is saying that, I am going to counterpunch. I'm going to fight back on it. I'm going to focus my fire on Biden. And I think he should do the same. He gives Biden a free pass. Um, I'm focusing on Biden. That's my focus. Uh, So reporters have described these attacks as uppercuts and haymakers. Uh, What do you think? Huh. Haymakers, huh? (laughs) (laughs) The haymaker. I mean, we should stipulate the press has bloodlust when it comes to covering politics. They'll take anything and make it seem like an uppercut or a haymaker. You don't say. It turns out one of their biases might be conflict, and they yeah. love conflict. I also think it's probably pretty likely that DeSantis's team is pitching reporters on how all of these are haymakers and uppercuts because they have to show the small handful of very wealthy MAGA-adjacent billionaires who plan to spend $200 million to get him elected that he's fighting back because the narrative has been he's just been getting punched in the face repeatedly for six months without doing anything. So, yeah, I wouldn't call these particularly tough attacks, but at least he is – Kind of sort of circling around the idea that he might make some sort of case against Donald Trump. 
it's an interesting strategy where I think the first part of that uh, clip was what he was saying to the audience in a speech where and then and there he did not name Trump. And then when reporters asked him, national reporters asked him some of these questions, that's when he actually started mentioning Trump by name. So clearly they are hoping that the actual voters, the Republican voters who still like Trump very much, do not get the the haymaker or the uppercut, <laughs> uh, do not hear them. And instead, like you said, the national press writes headlines that probably some of the the rich donors and the political class, uh, they they digest and not so much the uh, the regular MAGA voters out there. I would note that that is an absolutely idiotic, anachronistic, <laughs> kindergarten level <laughs> understanding of how the media ecosystem works. <laughs> Do you think these people are like sequestered like a jury after they leave the town hall? <laughs> like, I mean, it's just stupid. And I'm sure there are local reporters in those same scrums who are going to put them in their stories read by the local voters. It's just it's just dumb. Have one message, say it on the at the rally, at the town hall, in one-on-one conversations at the diner, and to the press. It's not that fucking complicated. What do you think about the the substance of the case DeSantis is starting to make against Trump, even if it's still a little soft, subtle, and you know, uh, split between different audiences? It's largely whatever. It's kind of sort of fine. The problem is not what he's saying; it's how he's saying it. And I'm not even talking about his voice, which, which is we could do it in a whole episode on which yeah. is and. We probably will. We got a lot of time between now and Iowa. <laughs> but he sounds like a typical politician. It's just, and it's all like these very weird, unexplained, esoteric references. Like he said, Cuomo did a better job than me on, on COVID. He voted for an, he attacked me for supporting an amnesty bill with no context. Do you want Cuomo's New York or the free state of Florida? He's like, I'd be happy for. For Iowans to make that decision, I'm like, you would? Do you you think they're going to put all those pieces together? What what are you talking about? I don't need a list to know what a conservative justice is. Is a reference to a point in the 2016 primary where he put out a list at the request of the Federalist Society of people he would consider appointing to the Supreme Court because of the opening for the Scalia seat. Now, I know that. You know that. Who the fuck else is so sick in the head that they know that? (laughs) Yeah, it's a it's a it's a bunch of haymakers and uppercuts for the terminally online. Yeah, <laughs> it's just and That's- you saw this same problem in the disastrous Twitter space announcement thing he did, where he talked about DEI and ESG like a hundred different times without ever explaining what they were. Like yeah. he is a typical politician who talks like a typical politician who seems to be in a political right-wing political bubble, I guess. And that is very evident in his messaging, either against Trump, for himself, or whatever else. I also think there's something a bit weird about, uh, and, and, and contradictory, about um, his message that I am more electable than Trump, but I am the true MAGA king. Uh, I am the real conservative who delivers, and Donald Trump only does what's in his own political interest, he was for amnesty at one point. He, you know, he basically is hitting him from the right, saying that Donald Trump moved left on too many things. But that also, by the way, Ron DeSantis is the more electable candidate because people won't. I just think that's a tough. It's a tough. I don't. Message. I don't know. I don't know that Republican base voters think that moderate equals electable. What do you think they think electable? I think they think strong equals electable. 
So he's trying to be, he's trying to out. I don't, uh, I don't think he's actually reading. I don't think Mitch DeSantis is accurately reading what the voters want. I think DeSantis thinks I can be your Trump and I am, I'm a more competent version of Trump and competence equals electability without actually really ever saying Trump lost. That's the hard part is he doesn't say that and Republicans don't really believe it. Um, It is, someone pointed this out today in one of the, maybe it was playbook. DeSantis uh, said we would have 55 senators without Trump, but DeSantis endorsed all the same losers that Trump did. Yeah, I know this is the, yeah. I still think his most, his, his most effective message is like, I'm MAGA without the political baggage, right? But I, I think you're right that the way he's, the way he's approaching that right now is, too subtle, too online, too, too, it's a little kitsch. It's basically what happens when every politician who's running is losing by a lot and they haven't been attacking their opponent. And then suddenly everyone says, oh, you haven't been attacking. And so they like throw out the whole kitchen sink and it's just sort of like attacks from all different sides and it doesn't really amount to much. That's he also, where he is right He now. also doesn't have a rationale for himself. Back in December, the Monmouth poll had DeSantis beating Trump 39 to 23. This week, they have Trump beating DeSantis 43 to 19, with nearly two-thirds of Republican voters saying that Trump is either definitely or probably the strongest candidate to beat Biden in 2024. That's tough for uh, Meatball's <laughs> electability argument, huh? Yeah, it's not great. It, and there are two big takeaways from this poll. The first one is that there is no non-Trump lane in this party because DeSantis lost 20 points in six months and almost every single one of those points went to Donald Trump. So it's not mm-hmm. that they don't want Trump is that there is a group of voters who are open to something better than Trump, Trump plus. So there's not, it's not Trump first non-Trump it's Trump first Trump plus. And so it would say that there was a non-Trump lane. If some of those points went to Mike Pence or Tim Scott or Nikki Haley, or these other more clear non-Trumps and the electability thing is interesting because, you know, we've talked a lot in this show and, tw- and during the 2020 Democratic primaries about how electability is a bullshit concept. No one really knows what it means. It's a guess, particularly on the Democratic side. It's really like sort of steeped in racial and gender tropes, you know, where you sort of imagine the electorate through the eyes of some imaginary Wisconsin voter. And, you know, in, the car- in that, I think actually the way that was handled redounded against the women and candidates of color in 2020 and other thing. But on the Republican side, it's pretty clear that electability equals strength. And the reason that is, is that you have to put yourself in the mind of how a Republican-based voter sees the world and how they get them for in their information. So if these people are huge consumers of right-wing media, by definition, all the polls show that, that the, the definite Republican-based primary voter is a right-wing media consumer. And what those people see is a world in which there are all these powerful forces working together. Hollywood, the government, academia, foreign countries to wage an all-out assault on the cultural relevance and political power of a certain segment of voters, right? This is what uh, affirmative action is about. It's what trans rights are about. It's like the world is changing and you need a – in that apocalyptic rendering of politics, you need a strong man to protect you. And Trump just looks stronger, evinces strength. Is pretty strategic at taking everything bad that happens to him and turning it around and using it as evidence of, of his strength and the threat he poses to the system. The Soros-funded DA indicted me for paying hush money. Like somehow he took hush money, paid to cover up an affair, and turned it into a piece of evidence that he is a threat to this liberal ward, world order. You're going to see the same thing if if Joe Biden's DOJ indicts him for hoarding 
classified documents in his house and all these other things. And DeSantis does not look strong. There's nothing about him that evinces strength. And Trump has that. And that is why he's winning on that point. He looks like a better chosen fighter to take on this largely imaginary system the Republicans believe in. Well, it's also why, to our previous discussion, DeSantis is trying to be Trump plus. That is his pitch now. I mean, that yeah. it makes a lot more sense on the electability side and on the I'm I'm the real mega king. I can deliver. I'm more competent. I don't have the baggage. And look at how strong I can be. I'm going after the the liberal media and Disney and the woke corporations and the woke mind virus and blah, 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 blah. But let's see if he pulls it off. I'm still looking at still looking at Iowa. Still interested. I'm like he's going to DeSantis is going to spend a lot of time there. I think if DeSantis loses Iowa, I don't see how he goes on. I think obviously if Trump loses Iowa, he could go on. But I think, you know, think crazy things happen in Iowa. Look, the more I, you're there, the Iowa caucus is a one of the rare formats that allows a politician with real personal charisma and people skills to meet the voters individually, spend times with them, and persuade them. And there is one candidate who seems well fit. If he is the cog specifically designed for the machine of relating to Iowa voters, it is Ron DeSantis. He's got the smile. He's got the voice. He's got the laugh. He's relatable. He just, he's relatable. Yeah. I just he's, see him sitting in a pizza ranch talking to a has, bunch of veterans about soybean crops. He's relatable. Crops. At the very least, he has Googled relatable. <laughs> um, yes. He has he has asked Chat GPT, what is a relatable <laughs> politician? What do I do? So I, it works. Speaking of the non-Trump lane, let's talk about uh, Mike Pence and Chris Christie. What are they thinking? Do they have a prayer? Are you willing to go to the mat for them like Lovett did for Tim Scott? I don't think you should you should excuse you or Tommy for the way in which you've also validated Tim Scott's seriousness. Uh, well, what did I say? I, what did I say? Give me a quote. I, I listened to the, the Tuesday pod at 1.75 speed, generally at 5.30 in the 30. morning on Wednesday mornings. <laughs> wow, you're up to 1.75, huh? I'm, yeah. I'm still in the 1.5, in the 1.5 world. But. Anywho, um... I, before we get to that, I just think it is absolutely amazing and fitting that we are now, by the time Christie and Pence announce, we will be at nearly 20% of Republican candidates who were almost murdered by Trump. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So what is Mike Pence thinking? That's a trick question because Mike Pence doesn't think. Historically, known as one of the dumbest people in American politics, I think he probably, probably truly believes that God has sent him on a mission to win this election. <laughs> So, sure, why not? Chris Christie is probably two reasons for Chris Christie. One, I think he needs attention like fish need water. And second, he has his eyes on a job hosting a weekend show on MSNBC that could be uh, <laughs> easily attainable if he runs a the sort of campaign he previewed where he's going to spend the whole time mixing it up in media moments with, with Trump. So yeah, I think uh, he sees no loss for himself either. Maybe small chance he becomes president. Chance he's got the 11 a.m. slot on Saturday on MSNBC. Yeah, there really is a certain brand of Acela Corridor politicians, pundits that think like, you know, like it's Chris Christie, right? He thinks He thinks that the Republicans he knows in Jersey and New York are like the Republicans elsewhere in the country. He's the same people who think like Mike Bloomberg is what the country's looking for for president. Right? <laughs> Just a whole se- the people who think that like a real independent candidate that would have a chance is someone who's fiscally conservative but socially liberal. It's like 
hello, step out into the rest of the fucking country. You mean the people <laughs> pitching Jamie Dimon? Wall Street yeah, CEO. There you, go. Yeah. there you go. Yeah, yeah, the Jamie Dimon bandwagon. The, the, those people that you could, uh, you could, you could fit them on the island of Manhattan. Um, okay, so <laughs> Chris Christie. Here's the thing. No prayer. Sarah Longwell was talking about this, and she said in her focus groups, the only mystery is who they hate more, Mike Pence or Chris Christie, <laughs> because they hate both of them a lot. These are Republican voters, two-time Republican uh, Trump Republican voters. So they don't. The base doesn't like them at all. I think Mike Pence's entire campaign is absolutely pointless, just, just completely pointless. I have no idea what's going on there. Chris Christie, Chris Christie gets in the race and just attacks Donald Trump for the entire race, awesome. I don't think it's going to get him anywhere. His theory is, I don't think Republican voters penalize you for directly attacking Donald Trump. I think that is um, wildly optimistic, <coughs> to say the least. But if he believes that, I'm, I'm good with that. Chris Christie wants to come just kick the shit out of Donald Trump. Yeah, I'm here for that. That's great. Good for Chris Christie. If Republicans want to make the primary mildly more interesting with some Donald Trump attacks from a certain loser, great. We got we, we got a lot of podcasting between now and then, so I, I'm for it. Yeah. I do have some concerns that the, with the field being this large now, again, that it's only making it easier for Donald Trump to win because, you know, anyone who's going to vote for Chris Christie, you know, all, all five or six people in New Hampshire, Ron DeSantis could use those votes. <laughs> Yeah, I thought about that, but Seth Maskett, who's a political science professor who writes a Substack, pointed out the other day that really the difference between like three candidates and twelve candidates is not that big a deal because it's it's just where the votes go. It doesn't matter if they're if they were dispersed to a third candidate or, or that same number of votes is dispersed over twelve candidates. It doesn't really make a huge bit of difference. So, would for someone to have a chance, it really has to be for all intents and purposes a one-on-one match between DeSantis and Trump. Could other people be on the ballot? Sure. If they're getting no votes, it doesn't really matter. But if there are, are vi- if there are any number of other viable candidates, it just makes it that much easier for Trump to win. So I don't care that it's 12. It's three is frankly problematic. You know what uh, my real test is? How many of these goobers finish behind Vivek Ramaswamy? who is the businessman who came out of nowhere uh, to, to be the, the anti-woke crusader and who's running for president. Which because is, I a, think, that's a real unique lane in this party. <laughs> right. Because I think there's a good chance that Vivek Ramaswamy finishes ahead of Mike Pence, Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson, uh, and then Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, we'll see. Okay. I'm not, that's not off the table. Yeah, you know, just a fun just a fun side bet here. So ideally, one of these candidates will argue that Donald Trump may not be the strongest candidate due to his um, many crimes and potential convictions. Uh, CNN broke the news yesterday that federal prosecutors have obtained an audio recording of a summer 2021 meeting in which Trump admits that he held onto a classified Pentagon document about a potential attack on Iran and suggests that he'd like to share the information with the people at that meeting but knows that he can't really declassify documents as an ex-president. Do you think that stealing the government's secret war plans will land Donald Trump in some trouble? One would hope. You'd think it, <laughs> it just, it seems, I mean, the guy has an amazing propensity to admit to crimes on tape. This is like the 17th time that's happened. And it's, so it's quite impressive. I do think before we send him directly to jail without passing go on this, it's worth noting because a lot of the commentary on this is he, he this proves he didn't declassify the documents because he says after he was president, he didn't declassify them. 
But as to my understanding, that has never been an argument that Team Trump has made in the court of law. They make in the court of public opinion all the time. They say he has the power to do what he could have done. It's a way to get out of the argument in cable news panels. But no attorney has gone into a courtroom, I believe, and said that, that, that Trump did not commit a crime because he declassified them because he didn't. And to do so would be to uh, violate every bit of your legal ethics and possibly end yourself up in jail. And so I don't know... What that is their the, defense? What is their what? What is the defense for this? That that you stole a bunch of uh, you stole a bunch of top secret documents. You were asked for them back. Uh, the Washington Post broke last week that like the day before <laughs> the DOJ came to get the documents, uh, there was uh, people moving boxes around. They were they were <laughs> there was security footage, and then there were Trump people asking the people who run the security footage, "How long does that secu-? just asking for a friend?" <laughs> How long does that security footage stay in the camera? <laughs> I mean, they literally did the crime version of a fire drill so that they could obstruct justice faster. <laughs> that, that was in the story. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was a. It was a fire drill. Okay, if the feds show up, uh, okay, the feds are at the door. Let's pretend the feds are at the door. Go, and then everyone <laughs> did. And then everyone did their crimes. Yeah, obstructed all. I the can't. It doesn't seem like there's a great defense to this. I think the questions <laughs> revolve around will the Department of Justice indict a former president for the on the Espionage Act? Mm. Or will it be a Presidential Records Act violation? Or will it be obstruction of justice? Obstruction of justice is a difficult charge to prove and to do. And, and are they going to do, like, would they charge a normal person for this if he was just the assistant secretary for I don't, North American affairs? Yes, he would be in prison. Are they going to do that? against the former president of the United States in the middle of running for re-election against the boss of the people making the charges? I don't know. That's the question. I hope so. I'm, I'm bullish on this one. Yeah, I'm bullish I, on this one. I, 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 you're not, bullish I, on the law, not the politics, I assume. Oh, yeah. No, I'm bullish on the law because I am a legal expert, as we all know. But I do think, like, I would bet that if you if, if they had to pick, that I, I would bet that this is an easier case to bring against Trump than the January 6th case. Yes, I would as as a fellow legal expert who reads the same people on Twitter and listens to the same single legal podcast that you do, I would agree with that assessment. <laughs> so that's why I'm I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling fairly bullish on this one. Uh, now, politically, as you mentioned, I, I look, I do think it's easier to make a political argument about why this is a crime versus the uh, hush money case. But, you know, I, it's not like I expect it to uh, change Republican voters' minds. In the general, I don't think it would be so good. He'll say, oh, Joe Biden took documents. I mean, Joe Biden said, I gave documents back. You stole secret war plans and you refused to give them back. I mean, it's going to be an absolutely amazing <laughs> moment in the, in, the, in the hypothetical debate about this. I'm not a document yeah. stealer. You're a document stealer. Chinatown. Yeah, bah, bah. Everyone's going to be covered with glory there. Um, all right. So Trump, who we all know is uh, is a policy wonk, um, <laughs> also laid out a few meaty proposals this week. He he wants to throw a giant nationwide year long birthday party in 2026 to commemorate America's 250th anniversary and to celebrate. He's also reviving his proposal to unilaterally end the constitutionally guaranteed right to citizenship for anyone born in the United States. What a very, very cool, very legal way to celebrate uh, our founding values, huh? 
very serious, very substantive, very patriotic. That's how I would describe this. The party thing is so Trump. It's he wants to like have a party in every state. He wants a giant like uh, a, 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 a like a world fair kind of thing. Um, the also the year long part where we're partying from I think it's like Memorial Day of 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 t- till till July Fourth of the next year. <laughs> oh, so it's an it's is that even on the calendar year? It's a whole it's a whole year. It's a year long party that goes state by state. I mean, you, it is a very yeah. It's like you could hear a lot of people. Be like, that sounds kind of fun. I like a party. Yeah. But but if you happen to be born here and think that you're an American, think twice. Because <laughs> now we should just get into that because it is it would be horrific to end what's known as birthright citizenship. It is in the 14th Amendment that any person born here in the United States shall be granted citizenship. That is part of the Constitution for some odd reason. Uh, the yahoos that work for Trump have led him to believe that he can just end that unilaterally through executive action, even though, again, it is in the 14th Amendment. So uh, it's it's horrifying because it's just a way to get rid of uh, dreamers, basically. It's a way to make sure that, that children who are born here but born to parents who are not American citizens um, don't get to become American citizens. That's all it is. Uh, so it's gross. But the idea that... Uh, that this would pass legal muster, even even with this Supreme Court, seems uh, a bit far-fetched. Yeah, I mean, it's absurd. It, it's racist. It's bigoted. It's frankly stupid. It, it is, I would say these two things, if you wanted to try to take a somewhat serious political lens to this, is they are sort of a Rosetta Stone for understanding Trump's appeal and how why and sort of how, the fundamentals of MAGAism. Which it, the party thing is, it's not just like Trump loves a party and he's going to try to get the village people to do a reunion for it or whatever else like <laughs> weird thing he would do. But it is, the Republicans have, have tried to find a way, like their message is essentially restorative nostalgia. They hate what America is now. And so they they sort of package their patriotism for trying to, re- to return it to something else. And so it would be very much uh, in line to try to make a lot of the 250th and a birthday of America, et cetera. The immigration thing is really important to understand how it fits with Trumpism because immigration is the bridge between bigoted culture war grievance and economic nationalism and populism. And this is what I think so many of these other candidates get wrong when they're trying to be take on Trump's mantle is the fusing of those two things. And, immigra- and immigration is what won him the nomination in 2016. And it was one of the reasons why he won the presidency, because he found a way to use it as evidence both that he was going to stand up for a certain segment of white voters who were scared about the changing demographics of America and a certain set of workers who feel left behind by the economy, in part and incorrectly, because they believe that immigrants are taking their jobs. And so this is right in his wheelhouse. Yeah. And I would also say that you know, we've talked about before how the politics of immigration are complicated. I think the median voter in this country would probably say they are in favor of more border security and also in favor of uh, certainly um, making sure that dreamers become citizens, people who are born here, and also in favor of more immigration and a pathway to uh, citizenship for the undocumented immigrants who are here. And so I think that the idea that you're going to end birthright citizenship I haven't seen any polling on it, but I would imagine it is quite unpopular, even though immigration politics are sort of complicated. Um, so I do think sort of in the vein of the 
CNN town hall where Trump said a bunch of shit that is uh, probably wildly unpopular in a general election. I think this falls into that category. And I don't think Democrats should necessarily be afraid of this one. No, no, not at all. If it if it came to pass, it would be horrific. But um, I think we should go on the offense on this one and, and let people know this is one of Trump's plans or something that he's trying to do, because I don't think it's very popular. The party, on the other hand, I don't know. I'm sure that's popular. Uh, <laughs> I'll see you there. I'll see you. At the, I'll see you at Trump's 2026 America party. When we come back, Congresswoman Barbara Lee will be right here in studio and uh, she and I will talk about her Senate race. Joining us now is a longtime progressive champion who's now running to replace retiring Senator Dianne Feinstein, Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Thanks so much for being here. Glad to be with you. I know you've had a long week that was capped off by a vote last night on the budget deal and an early morning flight back here to California. You voted no. Do you think President Biden could have negotiated a better deal? I think the president negotiated um, what he could negotiate. It was lose-lose. based on uh, Speaker McCarthy and the extreme MAGA Republicans. And if you look at their budget and what they passed out of the House, uh, in no way could that was that acceptable to the president or House Democrats. And so I think the president uh, did a great job in the negotiations based on the, the hand he was dealt. And, uh, you know, I think that... Um, as an appropriator, however, uh, you know, I looked at that uh, budget and the deal very carefully. And just based on uh, domestic discretionary spending, we're going to lose about a billion dollars this year. And uh, so myself, uh, the ranking member, Rosa DeLauro, mm. we voted against that because we knew the it was passing. I mean, we would never let the uh, country go into default. Mm. But we have to look out, myself personally, the 20 million people who are one paycheck away from poverty here in California and my district, and uh, I voted against the bill. Were you you at all surprised that McCarthy and a majority of House Republicans agreed to this? Well, when you look at the vote, it was Democrats... Who delivered that vote? That is true. That is true. I didn't even know if he'd get a majority of his majority, though. Yeah. Well, look at the rule. Uh, Yeah. You know, Democrats had to take the rule over. And so uh, these are extreme MAGA Republicans, and they listened to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump wanted the country to go into default. Uh, This was a manufactured crisis. We fought for a clean debt ceiling bill, Mm -hmm. which we voted for three times under Donald Trump. And in no way should it have been joined with an appropriations budget vehicle in terms of the the pr- provisions of the, the bill. Mm. We asked for it to be on parallel tracks, but that did not happen. And um, it, it was really uh, the MAGA Republicans. That was their bill. And President Biden uh, really mitigated against a lot of the pain that could have been had as a result of what happened. There are three House members in the California Senate race. Um, you and Katie Porter voted against the deal. Adam Schiff voted for it. Do you think that vote should be a relevant issue in the Senate race? Well, the, the voters will decide. I don't view my votes in a political context at all or in a campaign context because I have to look out for the least of these, the most vulnerable, 
my constituents and, again, the 20 million people in California who are living one paycheck away from poverty. Mm. When you look at the work requirements, we looked at who's going to lose. It's going to be primarily black and brown women mm. uh, with children. Uh, when you look at a lot of the cuts and how they're going to impact our domestic spending, it's going to be atrocious. It's going to be harmful. Uh, when you look at defense, for example, and I think you know that uh, defense spending, uh, it's unacceptable. Uh, it's, un- it's not sustainable. That was $886 billion that the most vulnerable are paying for. Mm. Uh, and when you look at the escalation of the defense budget, I want to remind you uh, that the Pentagon has never been, well, it's been audited five times. It was myself and a Republican who got the requirement to audit the Pentagon, the only agency that has not been audited. It's been audited five times and it has flunked five times. And we know that there's 150 to 200 billion that uh, GAO indicated uh, waste, fraud, and abuse, taxpayer dollars, waste, fraud, and abuse. So 886 billion in this bill was just unacceptable, especially when you have the most vulnerable paying for that. You've served in the House for 25 years, uh, where you're now the highest ranking black woman in Democratic leadership. What made you decide, I don't want to stay in the House, uh, I don't want to retire. I want to run for Senate. The Senate uh, is absent voices such as mine. Mm. The Senate uh, needs representation. Representation matters in a democracy. And when you look at what's missing in the Senate, uh, people who look like me, there are no black women in the Senate. And since 1789, there have been two African-American women serving, Mm. Vice President Kamala Harris and Senator Carol Mosley Braun. I have the experience. I was in the California legislature. I'm a progressive, but I know how to move the ball forward to make sure that everyone has a shot at the American dream. I've been fighting for years for the LGBTQ plus community, for communities of color, for women, for the disabled, for seniors, and I've been able to get the job done, and you can look at my record. And so I think now the Senate needs my voice. It needs my perspective. There's so many issues that aren't being addressed. Uh, When you look at housing, the affordable housing uh, crisis, when you look at the climate crisis, Mm. when you look at public safety, when you look at what is taking place here in California, again, the 20 million people living one paycheck away from poverty. I've been fighting for low-income, working families and the poor all of my life. I've lived that experience. And so I want to take my experiences, but also the job that I know I can do in the Senate uh, to make life better for every Californian. What do you want to try to get done in the Senate um, that the House hasn't been able to get done? Well, I want, first of all, to have the Senate debate affordable housing, what that Mm. means, and some specific plans. You don't hear many senators talking about the unsheltered and a plan to make HUD uh, be more uh, focused on how we can work together to make sure people are not evicted so that they don't get to the streets. Mm. But if evictions take place, how we immediately, and I think Mayor Bass is phenomenal in what she's doing, Uh, and she's a supporter of mine, and I know her very well, and I'm watching and seeing how she's doing this, getting people off of the streets into shelter as quickly as possible with children. It's a shame and disgrace in the wealthiest country in the world. We have unsheltered children. But with the mental health services, the wraparound services, also with job training and whatever people need to stabilize their lives and then make sure they have a safe clean place to live. But then you have to take it further to rent. You know, uh, the rents here in California, who can afford 
uh, on fifteen to twenty dollars an hour to live in California. Yeah. It's it's outrageous. I mean, yes, I support twenty five dollars. This is, should be the floor. Uh, that's not even a living wage in California. But we've got to get to where people can live in California, and so we have to raise the minimum wage to a living wage wage here, so people can afford to rent properties. You know, rent an apartment or a house or whatever. And then you have to look at uh, home ownership. Young people can't purchase homes in California. In my own district now, I think the average two-bedroom house is over $700,000. So what do you do? So you have to have a comprehensive, affordable housing strategy. And the Senate is not doing that and putting those ideas forward. What do you do about that? Because, as as you mentioned, there's a problem with um, people not being able to afford any shelter whatsoever, and they're on the streets. There's also rents are too high, impossible to buy a home. Is this an issue of supply? Is there a need to build more affordable housing? How does that get done? Is this an issue of rent control? What are some of the policies you think would make a difference? All of that. First of all, we need to figure out how to prevent evictions. We saw that with the moratorium during the height of of COVID. Mm. We had the resources to do that, right? Mm. And we did it. Uh, Secondly, we have to look at creative ways to develop affordable housing. I led the effort to establish with Bernie Sanders. He uh, held he did the bill, sen- the Senate and the bill to develop um, housing trust funds where uh, and this is just another way, a creative way to uh, have a, a strategy for home ownership where the trust fund buys the land with property and then you go in and rehab the property and then a homeowner, a potential homeowner can afford that property because they're not paying for the land, but Mm. yet they acquire equity in that that, uh, house. And when they want to sell, they'll sell it. They may not get as much, but they will uh, get a profit. And so housing trust funds are very uh, creative ways of uh, developing affordable housing for people to purchase homes. Then on uh, renting apartments, you know, so many, and I have a bill right now, the Deposit Act, so many people can't afford the deposit to rent a house or Mm -hmm. to rent an apartment. So we have to have our federal government, and HUD can do this, to help people with deposits. I mean, who can come up with five or $6,000? Yeah. If you're working at a $30,000 job, right? Right. And so we have to have the federal government work with state and local private sector to come up with a strategy for deposits for people who who can't afford it. So we have to look at it as a continuum and as a comprehensive strategy. And there are many, many um, ideas from low-income housing groups, Mayor Bass, again, uh, that need to be championed in the Senate that aren't being championed now. You have long supported progressive causes, even when those causes have been unpopular, even within the Democratic Party. What are the important but maybe unpopular causes you think Democrats should be doing more to support right now? Like, Where is the party being too cautious? Well, I think the party has been very um, aggressive on, so, on many issues, uh, on climate. I mean, we're working now on issues around climate justice with Raul Grijalva. I'm a co-sponsor of his bill. So I think we need to do more around uh, climate justice and uh, addressing climate for, low, you know, cleaning up low-income communities where pollutants have, have uh, cited their, mm. their plants and poisoned the soil and the air. And so we need to do more on on. Uh, environmental justice issues. And I think the party is beginning to do more. 
Uh, I support um, the uh, decriminalization and legalization of cannabis. I co-chair the Cannabis Caucus. Mm. When you look at marijuana justice and when you look at what's happening, what has happened with black and brown people in this state, in the country, it's crazy. Uh, so many people have, um, you know, records now because of that. And so I think the party, we need to push. I was on the uh, drafting committee, one of 15, uh, during this last election, and actually when President Obama ran. Mm. And so I got in provisions on uh, decriminalization, but we couldn't get the party to go toward descheduling and, right. and legalization. And so we need to move toward that, uh, of course, with the proper controls in place and the proper regulations, but we've got to do that. It's yeah. a criminal, it's a, a justice issue. Uh, I know you've been, one cause you've been supportive of is the um, the California's uh, Reparations Task Force Plan mm -hmm. um, that represents this country's biggest effort to design a reparations program. Can you talk about how that program might work and how you might convince other legislators in other states to adopt mm -hmm. such a program? Sure, and I'm really proud of, uh, first, our Secretary of State, Shirley Weber, who took this on in spite of all of the pushback and mm -hmm. the governor, uh, Governor Newsom, for signing that. And I watched the work as it took place, and I did speak at the last meeting. First, let me just say, uh, reparations is an international concept. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not just a United States concept. This is countries everywhere in the world understand that uh, when damage is done and when there is harm inflicted based on human rights, based on uh, slavery, based on uh, whatever, that you have a responsibility and a duty to repair the damage. Mm. Uh, I have the uh, a bill to set up a truth uh, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission also, because you have to have, and transformation is reparations, but you have to have the truth told about what has happened here in this country as it relates to African Americans in the Middle Passage. And I think this task force had went around the, the state and they found some truth tellers in terms of what has happened. And so we have a responsibility to uh, do this so we can heal, because we're in a divided country ra racially, and a lot of people don't understand the the history of this country in terms of the 250 years plus of, of being enslaved. My great-grandmother was born in Galveston, Texas mm -hmm. uh, during slavery. And the generational trauma and the generational uh, economic uh, gaps that have happened. I mean, when you look at the average income, the wealth gap, when you look at the incarceration rates, when you look at the housing disparities, when you look at the health care, I mean, COVID, you saw so many black yeah. people. So you, you see the damage when... Was, and criminal justice, that is not just because of today, that's because of policies that were developed as a result of, of enslavement, Jim Crow, reconstruction, segregation, racism. And so this has to be disrupted, these policies. And reparations is a way to do that. And of course, we supported Japanese reparations. We supported reparations for every every group that has been damaged mm. by policies. And this is not an individual thing. This is about the policies of our government and what our policies have created in terms of generational gaps and generational and systemic racism. And so I think the commission is looking at ways to address that. And I'm not certain the proper way the experts are looking at it, but they've got, we've got to do that. And I hope that California will set the standard mm. so that we can pass H.R. 40 in Congress, the, which is just a commission to study right. nationally yeah. reparations, and my bill to establish a truth, racial healing, and transformation commission. So 
there are a lot of California Democrats who are big fans of all three of you running for Senate. I know that Congresswoman Porter and Schiff are your colleagues. You all respect each other. I'm sure you don't want this to be a nasty race. But for people who like all of you, like all of your records, think you're all progressive, how should they think about the differences between the three of you? Well, they need to uh, evaluate us all based on our merits, our experience, our background. But also, I would hope that they would look at representation. And in a democracy, uh, this country needs representation. Mm. And uh, uh, black women should not be excluded. Our Democratic Party has really, uh, in many ways, uh, benefited from the work and the blood, sweat, and tears of black women. Mm. We're smart. Okay, we carry a heavy load, not just for the black community, for everyone who's been marginalized and shut out. We want everyone to have a seat at the table. And I think that's what I bring to the Senate race and to the Senate. So a poll last week showed that um, 67 percent of Californians believe that Dianne Feinstein is no longer fit to serve in the Senate. Certainly, it also seems like the people around her seem to know that she could retire tomorrow and be replaced with another Democrat. So far, she has refuse to do that. Do you think that's the right call? Listen, uh, first of all, I did not file my papers to run for the Senate until Senator Feinstein issued her statement. I talked to her in December, issued her statement uh, that she was not going to run. That's out of respect. Mm. That's just who I am. And uh, I want her to get well. I hope she's feeling better. She's back in Washington, D.C. And that's that's it for me. Okay. I'm focused on this race and, okay. and her health. And I think that's what, uh, and I understand all of those who are have different points of views. But just as a, a person who, who uh, recognizes her legacy and respects her and who I am uh, as a human being, I'm, you know, just praying for her mm. health. There's been a lot of discourse about age in politics lately, not just Feinstein. Biden is 80. Trump is 76. You're 76. If you win, you'd be in your mid-80s at the end of your first term. Have you given any thought to whether you'd serve just one term or? You know, I don't I haven't age is a number. I have a lot of experience and I bring a heck of a lot to uh, the party, the Democratic Party, and will bring a lot to the Senate. Mm. And so I have not even thought about uh, re-election. I'm thinking about election right now (laughs) so that I can win. And I hope that Californians really understand that uh, what's needed now in the Senate is my experience my courage and and my convictions. I mean, you know, when uh, the authorization to use military force was presented, everybody voted for it. That was to to go into Afghanistan after the horrific uh, events of 9-11, where so many people were killed in our country. Uh, There was a 60-word resolution that came before us, and it gave any president, including President Obama, the authority to go to war in perpetuity. I said no to that. And I think uh, you have to have somebody who you can look at their past to understand what they will do in the future. And that's what I hope people will look at and, and factor that in as they make their decisions, hopefully to vote for me. If Senator Feinstein does change her mind and resign, Governor Newsom will appoint her replacement. Do you think it would be fair for him to appoint one of you running for the Senate seat, knowing that it might give that candidate a bit of an advantage. First of all, I'm not going to get involved in the governor's decision-making process. Mm. I mean, he did commit to appointing a black woman, but, you know, he's going to do what he intends to do or wants to do. I'm going to stay focused. <laughs> I got to stay focused. I've got to raise money. Yeah. We're building a great uh, team. We're doing a grassroots campaign, lots of support throughout the state. And if I 
started thinking about other things other than my day job yeah. <laughs> and this campaign. No, I'm very focused. What is it? This is obviously the first time you're running statewide. Mm-hmm. What is it like? Uh, how's the campaign going? And um, and what's sort of the path to victory for you sure. guys? It was great. Last week, you know, it was the convention here in Los Angeles. And it was really unbelievable because let me tell you, I've been a party person, Democratic Party person, since I was a youth director, Northern California youth director of ah, the party. Wow. And there were so many people there who knew me and who know my work in the Democratic Party. I helped start the Peace Caucus, the Progressive Caucus. Uh, I helped start the uh, Poverty Caucus. And so I've worked with delegates and grassroots organizations and the party for years and years and years. As I said, I was on the drafting committee twice for the Democratic Party platform, brought a lot of California provisions into our national platform. And so it's really uh, an exciting campaign because I I really uh, am working to get the Democratic Party endorsement like everybody else is. Mm -hmm. But last week at the convention, I mean, we had lines of people coming up to me, thanking me, telling me they're going to support me, telling me they're going to vote for me. Lines of people talking about the issues in California, where I stood. Many wanted to compare me with the other two candidates, which is fine. That's what you do in an election. Mm. And uh, after I spoke at several of the caucuses, those that were undecided came up and said, sign cards. I'm with you. I'm with you. So it's really uh, reward. And this is all over in rural mm. counties, in uh, the desert uh, in Southern California, you know, I was uh, raised actually in uh, San Fernando. Mm. I went to San Fernando Junior High and San Fernando High School. And let me just finish by telling the story about San Fernando High School. Uh, when I was 15, I wanted to uh, be a cheerleader mm. here in the Valley. And uh, I'm a Valley girl. Okay. okay. But there was a selection process where you'd go before a selection committee and this little group would select you. But I didn't look like what they would select, okay? 15 years old. And I wasn't sure what to do. And then I remember the NAACP because my mother was one of the first 12 students to integrate under the NAACP's lawsuit, the University of Texas at El Paso. Right. So I went to the NAACP. I said, I want... Uh, to be a cheerleader. And they looked at that. They said, we'll work with you. They helped me organize. And there was a lot of pushback. But we pushed the administration to change the rules of the game from a selection process to an election process. So I tried out in front of the student body. And guess what? I won. I was the first black cheerleader at San Fernando High School. And at the same time, other girls of color won that same year. And so I share that story because it's about dismantling these systems that are barriers for people, whatever it is, based on uh, gender identity, based on uh, whatever, race, gender, disability, age. We've got to make this country fair and equal for all. And, and so I've been doing this since I was 15, my first election, and I won that, and I intend to win this one. Well, I was going to ask about sort of how your life experiences have, have shaped your political views mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned that story. You know, you were born in El Paso at a time when the city was segregated. You and your family have experienced firsthand the effects of segregation and discrimination. Um, like you said, you're, you know, your mom was one of the first to integrate University of Texas. Um, you became the first black cheerleader in the San Fernando High. How have all of these sort of personal experiences shaped your view of politics, of this mm-hmm. country, and what's possible in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I was on public assistance also after a, a marriage, which uh, 
you know, I found myself in a domestic violence situation. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Had an abortion early on when I was living in San Fernando. I was on public assistance when I was a student at Mills College, an all-women's college in Oakland. I raised two small, now my age, phenomenal young men uh, as a single mom. I had to struggle a lot. I went to UC Berkeley. I founded a community mental health center. Now, you know, I understand the mental health crisis because that's my background, clinical social work. And so I've always had many challenges that so many black women and women of color have, but but they're not, they're challenges for me to figure out how to make sure everybody doesn't have, they don't have to go through what I went through. And so I always look at policies and structures and what I can do to make life better for everybody. And so my experiences have shaped my view. When I was in views of what I need to do as a public person, when I was in Sacramento, I was in the legislature. Mm. Pete Wilson signed more bill, more of my bills into law than mostly anyone who was elected in 1990. I carried the Violence Against Women Act. Mm. I carried the bill that blocked uh, the enhanced sentences for blocking abortion clinics. Uh, you just name it. And I did it. And he signed my legislation because I'm progressive. He was right wing. We'd end up, I negotiate, and I'm a good negotiator right there and get get my bill signed. Yeah. And so I believe that uh, my life experiences, uh, people will look at, I said earlier, 20 million people in California live one paycheck away from poverty. I fought our own party to say the P word. It was always fighting, which we must do, and I continue to for the middle class, but we never talked about the poor. Mm. Okay, so I've, we set up a task force. Finally, after about 10 years, I got everyone to see the light, so I chaired the task force on poverty and opportunity. So I just used those personal experiences uh, to try to make life better for everyone. My dad was a retired lieutenant colonel in the Army. He served in World War II and in Korea. Mm. Yet when he wanted to buy a house, in San Leandro, California, uh, you know, in San Leandro, they were burning crosses. You had, we had to drive around, coming from Southern California to visit my aunts, had to drive around San Leandro wow. because uh, black people were run out of town. My dad wanted to buy a house in San Leandro, and my mom did when he was stationed at, at uh, Fort Ord. He was run out of town. Because And he had his uniform on. But guess what? Today I represent San Leandro in the House of Representatives and in the legi- when I was in the legislature. So the arc of the moral universe is long, as Dr. King said, but it bends towards justice. And so yeah. I have to just say, and still I rise. <laughs> and we have to remember that. Well, that is, in very, that is very inspiring, as is your, your story and, and career. So um, thank you for, for joining us. Good luck out on the trail and, uh, and come back again soon. Glad to be with you. Nice seeing you here on this coast. I know, I know. (laughs) Take care. All right, that's our show for today. Thank you to Barbara Lee for joining us and uh, hope everyone has a fantastic week. Oh, wait, John, John, John. Oh, 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 hi, Elijah. Before before we go, Mm -hmm. can can we do a quickie? Have a quickie? Do a quickie? You know what? I would move on from there. Yeah, I, I, okay. I'd move on. I'm, I'm glad you wore your. Uh, go continue. <laughs> wore what? Don't worry no, about it. Just, uh, just it's Pride Month. Conservatives have embraced cancel culture uh, recently, and they're going after any brand that they deem as woke, including Bud Light and Target. Now the right wing is divided over the latest brand to enter their crosshairs: Chick Fil A. What did mm. Chick Fil A do? They hired a vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's it. 
Some conservatives are saying that they shouldn't boycott the famously Christian company. Other conservatives have another take. Here's right-wing goon and Elon Musk favorite, Benny Johnson. Let's hear the clip. Chick-fil-A, ladies and gentlemen, the biggest fraud ever pulled on American Christians, that this is some type of like Christian company. Shame on them. Shame on them. Let me tell you what. Go read your Gospels. Let me tell you someone who wasn't tolerant. Christ. <laughs> Tolerance is not a Christian virtue. <laughs> <laughs> wow did that deliver let yeah. me tell you let me tell you someone who wasn't tolerant jesus christ famously intolerant yeah. i don't i don't know i do not know that benny johnson has actually read the bible i will tell no. you he knows content i am i am <laughs> i was raised catholic i know my new testament pretty sure jesus was tolerant I thought he was going to say, you know what's not in the Bible? A vice president of diversity. <laughs> I thought he was going to go there. <laughs> but no, no, he went, he went after Jesus himself. The greatest fraud ever perpetuated on Christians. Is that what he said? Mm. Yes. This is tough. It was Chick-fil-A? So if you are a God-fearing Christian, no more Bud Light, no more Chick-fil-A, no more Target. These people are going to have to start like frequenting businesses that are for libs because they're going to they're now running out of uh, red state America companies. I think we're headed towards a completely separate anti-woke economy funded by Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. Okay, yeah, good luck. Good luck. The anti-woke chicken restaurant, the anti-woke department store. I mean, we already had an. There's an anti-woke bank. There's an anti-woke SPAC vehicle that's being created. There, there will be no end of rich conservatives trying to separate their voters from their money. Treat your neighbors as you would like to be treated. Not a Jesus. Not a Jesus commandment. No. <laughs> not, not, a, not a Jesus. Not a directive from Jesus. The golden rule: fake news. Fake news. Jesus is here to spread the good word. And the good word is, fuck all your neighbors. <laughs> anyway, that's awesome. Benny Johnson, yeah. great job. Great job. Great job to you, Elijah. Great job to you, Elijah. That was a fantastic take to, uh, to, to leave us on. And again, thank you, Barbara Lee, for being part of this. And uh, everyone have a great weekend. We will talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producers are Andy Gardner-Bernstein and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Jordan Cantor is our sound engineer with audio support from Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Thanks to Hallie Kiefer, Madeline Herringer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taff, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Mia Kelman, Ben Hefko, and David Tolls. Subscribe to Pod Save America on YouTube to catch full episodes, exclusive content, and other community events. Find us at youtube.com slash at Pod Save America.